Good morning. Now, a lot of the times when Chris is up there and he says this is my favorite, either he either says it's my favorite hymn or one of my favorite hymns or one of his favorite hymns, and actually he was telling the truth this time. Uh, Lynn, we had that song in our wedding, right? And can it be? Yeah, with uh, acapella. So um, I do love that song, and it does go well with the, with the passage today. So um, we have a little bit of a time constraint from me getting from here into there. And for those of you who aren't aware, those of you joining us online or on the, um, uh, or on the phone, and, or anyone who's relatively new here, we have four services here every Sunday morning. Um, and two of them happen pretty much at the same time. We have this one starts at 8.40. There's one that starts in the gym across the hall at 9 o'clock. Uh, and the preacher, whoever's preaching that morning, preaches here and then goes in there and has about four minutes to take a breath and then starts another sermon in there. So that service is running a little tight today. So we're gonna, I'm going to pray and we're going to get into this. Uh, not so that you don't get the best, but instead of all this talking that I'm doing right now, we're going to get straight to the message so that you have, you have an opportunity to hear what God has to say today through Hebrews chapter 10. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. And Lord, we've, we've listened uh, to the proclamation of your word in Hebrews for now, this will be the 10th week. And it seems to us like the author keeps saying similar things, but he is building to something. And Lord, this is the day where he built, this is the last building uh, block to the better things that come because of you. So Lord, as we hear about the the let us passages, the let us do this, let us do this, Help us be encouraged to do just that, to remember whose we are. And Lord, as you speak to us today, this is not my message for them. We want it to be your message for us. As you speak to us, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive what you would have us see, hear, and receive. Lord, I ask that you stand in my shoes, that you give me your thoughts, and you speak with my mouth the word you want your people to hear. We pray this in the name of Jesus, through the power of your spirit, for the glory of God our Father. Amen. So we've talked about this being the book of better things. Um, Jesus is better than the law. He's better than the, the, better than the prophets. He's better than Moses. Um, he's better than the whole sacrificial system. Um, and the, the preacher, this, this author is a pastor, and he's building for 10 chapters, describing to them something they already know, but they've left behind. The glory, the beauty, the, beauty the, uh, the, the person of Jesus, and how it is better than the system that they're trying to go back to. So one way you can look at it, because Jesus says, I am the door, right? And it also says, Jesus says, I, I, I stand at the door and knock, and you need to open. So let's just think of it this way, and you'll see that last little part in the last verse today kind of shows you that, that he's going to swivel. Um, the, he's describing this glorious door. It's, it's ornate, it's heavy, it's like a vault door, but, but beautiful, window on it, doorknob, and really strong hinges. Today's the last day in this passage that he really concentrates about talking about the door. Chapter 11, he's talking about the hinge, that you're going to, if you turn the knob and you open, you're opening from something that's Okay, it's, it's good, because God made it, the law and the prophets and all of that, but that all points to something better. So he's encouraging his people to walk through the door and to close the door behind them and don't go back. 
So this is his last attempt to really kind of pull that up. And he summarizes, and if you're really a student of Scripture, I would ask you to go back to today when you go home, to go back in, in from chapter, read chapter 10 and go back and read chapter 4. And you will see a lot of very similar verbiage. This is what's known in theological circles as inclusio. Jesus does it often. He'll say something here, a few events will happen, and then he'll say something over here. And it's kind of like a, he starts here, and he ends back up here, kind of like a parable. It, it, it starts here, it kind of, it's, a, it's parabolic. So this author is being very careful when he says, and he's an excellent preacher because it's a tough thing to do to have that, it's, modern day we'll call it a callback. Like we're, remember what we said? He's going back. So read chapter 4, read chapter 10, and you'll see that everything in between there was talking about the same things. The passage reads like this, and it's a long, it's a relatively long chapter. I think I'm well-versed on it, so we can read through it pretty quickly. Um, but follow along on the screen. It's a little easier than me when I, when I get going. A law, the law, is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away the sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, and by the way, we don't have evidence in the scriptures and the gospels of Jesus saying these exact things, but it's a quote from Psalm 40. Sacrifice and offerings you do not desire, but a body you prepared for me. That's a messianic psalm. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. And then I said, meaning Jesus, the, the, the Messiah, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. And then he, then he shifts a little bit. Um, First he said, sacrifices and burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. So he's talking about the, in the metaphor, he's talking about the door. And by that, and by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, meaning Jesus, has, had offered for, for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and will write them on their minds. And then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. And then there's a change in voice here. Same guy, but just this is when he starts to encourage his people. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence 
to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way open for us through the curtain. That is his body, not the curtain in the temple anymore. That is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. And then he goes to, look, if you know this and you, and you do this and then you go back to the old, there's a warning here. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God under, underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember those earlier days, and this is reminding them of who they were when they first came to Christ. Remember in those earlier days after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great con uh, contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution, and other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he's promised. For in just a very little while, he is coming, will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. And then here's the last verse that kind of moves in toward chapter 11. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. So a couple of things right off the bat, and then we'll get to the, to the meat of this um, passage. This is three times now in the book of Hebrews that the, that the author warns Christians who started going back to what they knew before. You know, if someone could be found guilty of judgment um, on the, in the law of Moses by the testimony of just two or three witnesses, how much more so those who trample the body of Christ underfoot, those who kind of despise, that's not his exact word, but despise the sacrificial blood of Jesus. Um, I don't believe, I don't believe, although there are theologians that do, I don't believe that you can, you can lose your salvation but when we, when, we, when we believe that you cannot lose your salvation, we lose something that I think it's my duty to remind you of today. And that is God's judgment. It says how dreadful it is to be in the hands of the living God. I don't ever think of it as dreadful. I think of it as glorious 
to be in the hands of the one who made the world. That, you know, that there's, a, there's a contemporary song that says, I don't know what the day will bring, but I know who brings the day. You know, I don't know what the future holds, but I know the one who does. And so I, I have confidence in that. And he even says, have confidence in your faith. But, but folks, there is something to the judgment of God. In fact, Scripture tells us two things that seem opposite. One, it is your mercy, Lord, that leads us to repentance. And also, that when God shows mercy and grace and, 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 and makes it easy for people, he says that the people don't respond. People only respond to judgment. So I want to just put out in front of us today, not to you, to us, that if there's something going on, it says those who, who know this and continue to sin, is there something in your life that's going to burn? that you need to confess? Is there something that's sitting on your heart that you know is, is a barrier between you and God or between your covenant relationships with other people? Is there something that needs to go away? Is there something that, because he, he talks over and over and over again about our consciousness being cleansed. Because the people, the Jewish people at that time who had become Christians, like the Dutch, like the Catholics say, like, like, like every, everybody says that everyone thinks that their, their faith journey, that we have a monopoly on guilt. You didn't do enough good things on Sunday, or you did too many things on Sunday that you shouldn't have done. And, and, and uh, when you were on vacation, you didn't take Sunday off, and you didn't go to church. I mean, little things. And then there's the big ones. There's the, there's the well, I'm not good enough for God to love me. In my former charge, I knew three older guys. They were all brothers. They all served in World War II, and they were at D-Day. And because of the horrible things they had to do and the horrible things they experienced, they never once took communion because they didn't believe that they were worthy of receiving from God a means of grace. Now, I think that's a misunderstanding of communion. But they had guilty consciences because they believed they broke the commandment, thou shalt not kill. What is it in you? Is there something, and I'm not, I'm not saying there is, but is there something that's sitting on your heart heavy, that's weighing on your conscience, that if I put a white piece of paper in front of you and I asked you what it is, you would say it's a white sheet of paper. And then I took a Sharpie marker and right in the middle went, bloop, put a black dot. And then I held up the same piece of paper. You say, what do you, and I'd say, what do you see? You'd say, I see that black dot. See, it tells us here that God chooses to remember our sins no more. But we remember them. So are you living with unconfessed sin? And if you are, what's the remedy? The high priest who made a sacrifice once for all that can cleanse you from all unrighteousness and cleanse your conscience. Now that's not, that's not the meat of this passage, but he is warning those people that if you know the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God that Jesus is the high priest who made the sacrifice once for all, never has to be made again. He makes his case from chapter 4 all the way through chapter 10 that this old system was good because it pointed out what was coming, but it couldn't actually give people that which they wanted from it. And another example of that is John 
chapter 5. Remember the healing at the pool of Bethesda? When Jesus, see, you know, a great number of disabled people used to lie there, um, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And, and, and there was a legend at, at, at this pool that every now and then an angel would dip its wing in the water and stir up the waters, and the first person that gets in is healed. And so here's this guy. He's an invalid. He can't move. He can hear. He can see, but he can't get up and, and get into the pool. And, and so this guy has bought into a system that cannot give him that which he needs it to give him. And Jesus walks up to him because the blind can hear the water stirred and get up and get in. The deaf can see the water stirred, get up and get in. But this guy can see and hear the water get stirred and cannot get up and get in. And Jesus walks up to him. He'd been in that situation for 38 years. And Jesus walks up to him and says, do you want to get well? And the answer should be yes. But he gave him all the reasons he's not well. He was buying into a system that could not give him that which he needed from it. These people were going back to the sacrificial system that could not give them that which they needed from it. And we do it too. We go back to, well, I'm a pretty good person. I'm, at least I'm not like that. At least I haven't gone this way with our culture. At least I'm not this way. At least I'm not, at least I'm not, at least I'm not, at least I'm not. But God isn't concerned about what you're at least not. He's concerned about who he wants you to be whose you are, not what you do. Now, faith and behavior are linked, and that's where we're going to move back to because the very beginning of the next chapter is the only biblical clear definition of what faith is, and he starts to set that up here, and it's the let us passages here. It says, therefore, brothers, since we have the confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Are we drawing near to God? Or are we going through the motions that make it look as if we're drawing near to God? I can't answer that. But it tells me here that my heart needs to be sincere. And so if I, if I, I know if I'm going through the motions, because I'm just going through the motions, I'm not convicted by the Holy Spirit. I'm not moved by the worship of God. The, the proclamation of the word of God seems to go, okay, would you just get it done? Instead of, I want to hang on every word that God might have to say. And it goes on. Another let us Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promises faithful. This is, this is the beginning of the talk about faith. Let us hold unswervingly to the, one we, or to the hope we profess for he who promises faithful. These people knew the hope that they professed, and then they went back to, to, to hopelessness, to guilt, to, to a perpetual system of having to, be, having to make themselves right with God instead of allowing God to make them right with him. And the beautiful thing about this passage, this uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, and you've heard this quoted from this pulpit in the last 10 and a half years, probably, probably 100 times. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. It is one thing to hold on to what we consider to be faith. But the reason we should do that is that the one who promised is faithful. Is he faithful? Has he been faithful? If you look back in the, in the next chapter, they're going to talk about all the people that, that 
that believed God and behaved according to that belief, even though they never received the promise that God had offered. They were hoping for the next generation, the next generation, the next generation, and they believed that God was trustworthy. Therefore, they were going to do the obedient thing. Has God been faithful in your life? Has there ever been a time when he intervened that you cannot explain it in any other way except that God is good and he pays attention to the needs of his people? Well, one way that's a perpetual reminder of that is the fact that next week we celebrate communion. And that is God saying to us, remember what I've done and remember what I'm doing. And remember what I promised that I would do. But we're to hold unswervingly to the hope we profess profess because the one who promised is faithful. He's never broken a promise. He's never made a mistake. He's never told a lie. And he tells us that he will make all things new. He will make all things new. All the tears will go away. All the suffering will go away. The lion and the lamb will lie down next to each other and there will not be predators and prey. He tells us that he sets up and takes down nations, kings and kingdoms. And some of us really want him to do that now. But even if we don't see it, do we, are we convinced that God is faithful? Because if we are convinced that he is faithful, there is nothing that should stop us from holding on to that hope. I painted this picture for you before. I now have a granddaughter and a grandson. I used to use my son as an example because, but you've been there when your children or your grandchildren, they, they sit on your foot and they wrap their arms around your leg and you drag them along and there's nothing you can do to get rid unless you actually pry their hands off, but they are holding unswervingly. They are not letting go. Why? The pure joy of it. Honestly, folks, that's how our, that's our attitude is what it's supposed to be, is to hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Remember, what the, the definition of faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. Let us be a people and individual persons who hold unswervingly to the hope we profess Because Jesus is Lord, he's the great high priest, he's made the sacrifice once for all, he's cleansed your soul, your heart, your conscience, and your mind. It doesn't matter what happens out there, it doesn't matter what the body politic does, it doesn't matter where culture goes, God is concerned about that, but the thing you have control over is whether or not you're going to be holding unswervingly, because God is indeed God and we aren't. It goes on, hold on swervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. How are we doing on that? Not an accusation. I just can't remember the last time that I looked at someone and said, how might I spur you on toward love and good deeds? Because you know that word spur is something we use all the time, but think about it. You kick a horse, right? Cowboys have spurs on it. Where are we prompting one another to do what is good, right, noble, excellent, and praiseworthy? How are we looking for opportunity to encourage someone to, if necessary, exhort someone, correct someone? How is it, and and how are we seeking being spurred on toward love and good deeds for ourselves from others? See, there's this idea that it's just between me and God. And you cannot show me that in Scripture. Once you're a follower of Christ, every individual conversion is individual. 
But once you're part of the body of Christ, that means you're part of the people of God. And I cannot be faithful alone. The supernatural vehicle that God chooses to use to show his glory, to show his redemption, to show his salvation, to even show his judgment to the world is us, not me, not you. It's us. And so this encouragement to spur one another on toward love and good deeds is not a nice little Christian colloquialism. It is the will of the God most high. We are to be us moving toward what God is calling us to be and to do. And then here's the tough one, not for the people sitting in the room, but for those that are joining us online. And I want you to know before I speak to this, I'm not speaking to the two friends of mine that are, on the, that are online right now or in the next service because they're, they've had some medical news and they're just reeling and they're not ready yet. They can't take right now. Everyone asking them about it. They just, they just need to get their head around it. That's not what I'm talking about. But the scripture right here says, and if you're traveling, if you're on vacation, you're just trying to stay connected with your church, awesome. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. Is the day approaching? The day? Kind of looks like it. When we give up the habit of meeting together physically, we are denying the other people in the family of God wholeness. This is not shame. It's not an accusation. But those of you who it's just gotten to be the habit of hopping on an IP address and consuming worship from home. I'm glad we have the technology. I am. And again, you can start turning it off right now. I get it. But we're not whole without you. We are not the people that God wants us to be if you, as one of God's people, aren't with us. And if you're from another, if another church is your church home, they're not complete without you. And you're not complete without us. Pajama church is easy. Being a member of the church of Christ, the people of God, shoulder to shoulder, face to face, sometimes anger to anger, sometimes accusation to accusation, sometimes hypocrisy to hypocrisy. It's hard. But it is the call of the Most High God on every Christian's life. So I encourage you, as the author of Hebrews encouraged the Hebrew Christians who were trying to be Hebrew and not Christian, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. And that's the piece we're missing. Would you come to encourage us? And would you allow us to encourage you all the more as we see the day approaching? For those of you who look and you're here, you know that regular church attendance 
people that consider themselves regular attendees to a church. It used to be three out of four weeks in a month. And now it's 1.6. And look, I don't, you don't have to come here. But if the day is approaching and God is now convicting us, his people, of whether or not we're being faithful if we're showing the world because every time we show up to gather with the body of Christ, with other believers, it is a defiant act. We are saying we are not our own, but we belong body and soul and life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And we belong body and soul and life and in death to his body, his bride, that is the church. So let us not give up the habit of meeting together, but instead let us encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. Let's pray. Lord, we bless you. We praise you. We thank you. Even for your admonishments, there is nothing. Even your judgment is because you love us, because you want what's best for us, because you want what's best from us, because you want us to hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, not bending our knee to every will and whim of our own lives and the culture. Lord, how miserable this world would be if there were no semblance of one greater than ourselves. If we were the measure of all things, then the fickle will and whim of human beings and our cultures would destroy everything that you made. We thank you that you love us enough to tell us the truth, to call us back to what we know and are confident in, and that is you, our great high priest, who died to set us free from sin once for all time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.